2: Hi, I'm Pete Hammond. And I'm Dominic Patton. And this is the Deadline Podcast TV Talk.
3: Today we'll be discussing the upcoming Emmy Awards season and the impending, we think, writer's strike. Plus, you'll also hear some interviews done from our annual Deadline Emmys Contenders event with the cast and creators of The Leftovers and The Path. But right away, let's set this up. Pete, Emmy season has begun. The horses are on the track. Uh. What's it going to (laughs)
2: be? Well, you tell me. Uh, talk to me in September. Uh, actually, uh, you know, uh, it's the Emmys versus the Oscars. You know, we just finished the Oscars, and now we're in Emmy season. It never used to be like that. Emmys were not taken as seriously, by the way, like they are now. And- oh,
3: and look, my friend, I have to right there stop you, and I know that we're <laughs> going to give away our own bias. Because me as the yeah. TV critic and you as the film critic. Yeah. Emmys are where it's at. Oscars are, are a nice star-studded event that immediately fades into obscurity in my p- point of view, whereas with the Emmys, you have something that is visceral, immediate, and that is just honestly, in this era of peak TV, it's where quality
2: is. Dominic, why in an obit, you know, when somebody dies, does it not say Emmy winner if they're an Oscar winner? It only says Academy Award winner. Yes, and I grant you that. And often, and I will say this as someone who has written more than his fair share of obits,
3: Obit writers are lazy. The fact of the matter is, is most people besides you, Mr. Hammond, the walking encyclopedia of all things cinema, yeah. could not name who won the Oscar for Best Picture last year. Well, and let me tell you this. I think none could. of them, none of they them. They couldn't
2: could. name who won the Oscar for Best Picture during the Oscars. They probably, they couldn't, <laughs> yes. Unless
3: you're Faye Dunaway with a reset. Having said that, the fact of the matter is that the Oscars year after year, at least in the past decade, have reached out to films that while some of the best films, and I have to say, I think Moonlight was one of the best films by far of last year, as was La La Land for different reasons. But they still are reaching out to films. These are not crowd winners. These are not populist films. These films barely even make, I don't know, $30 million, let alone fifty. Now, maybe it started with The Hurt Locker. I'm not going to put this on Catherine Bigelow's shoulders, but <laughs> Emmys are where you're seeing shows that people are actually watching. I say and I don't feel I need to say anymore, Game of Thrones.
2: Game of Thrones. People do watch. I'm not saying people don't. And the Emmys are important because um, they're an ego boost for networks, studios, stars. They're necessary. I don't think they add to the bottom line of anybody because there's too many Emmys. There's just so much proliferation. I used to be on the Board of Governors of the Academy, and all we were about was trying to reduce them. And, you know, since then, all they've done is increase them. They give away seven or eight awards for makeup and prosthetics alone. This is ridiculous. The people that have Emmys are out everywhere, the Oscar is a much more prestigious thing because it's much harder to get.
3: I will grant you that, and I will also reveal that I have friends who literally, I know, keep their Emmy in their bathroom to hold up, like, toilet paper and what have I've you. I've been
2: nominated five times for Emmys, you oh. know?
3: I mean, I have certificates somewhere. I don't even know where they are. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I will say, but that, that this is, I think, and maybe the, 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 our argument isn't really an argument, it's a debate on different uh, on different levels. Because while I agree with you, having the Oscar to add to, to your name... Uh, it is of course an obit gimme. I of course, and and I will grant you, there is a prestige and there is a there is a a, a career defining element to it. But I think with the Emmys, what you're seeing is is you're seeing it's more about to use that terrible phrase. It's more about the journey than the destination. Which is with the Emmys, you're seeing such a high quality of television in there in in the race that you're actually seeing real stakes at at, at play. The issue though that's really going to happen this year to kind of pull it back and focus for 2017 is. Everything's up for grabs because Game of Thrones just ain't playing the game this year. Because they're starting late with their latest season, they will not be eligible for this year's Emmys.
2: So the big winner is out of the race. Oh, so- too bad. You know, too bad that we can't have the same show win for the third year in a row, and like Veep, you know, which is in the game, could win for the third year in a row in series, and the sixth year in a row for Julia Louis. That's what I'm saying about Emmys. You know, it has become so predictable in a sense. The Academy tends to vote for the same things, except in, obviously in categories that aren't repeats like uh, movies and miniseries and that sort of thing that might be one-offs. But even those, even the miniseries now are like American Horror Story get nominated every year and that sort of thing. So it, that, even that's the same thing. There's just very little that's unpredictable about well, the Emmys. Well, so when you say who won the Oscars last year, I mean, who won the Emmys? It's Game like, of Thrones. <laughs> we just talked about it. I know, but One the, of the most remembers show, this? But people do because this? this is the fundamental difference. Yeah. The
3: Emmys are awarding not just excellence in television, they're mm-hmm. also reaching out to shows that are well watched. Now, of course, there has been a it's great decline. Cable and now, I will say, there's a great decline in what the Big Four have done. <laughs> yeah. I think this year you're going to see a little difference. I right. think you're going to see This Is Us. I think you're going to see other shows that are on the Big Four make a bit more of a resurgence. Well, we better I even, see. It. I even think that Designated Survivor and a few others could maybe get back in. The oh, game. I doubt that. And I'm yeah. always, always thinking. That there are good chances that come from Empire in one way or another, and I'm not just talking to Raji. Yeah, but no. I think more Empire and more only gets
2: seeing... nominated for her and like costumes. Well, well you know what? There's all and always... the Emmys don't. They, they're like a, a zebra. They cannot change their stripes. Here's the thing with the Emmys: you have really good sci-fi shows. They're just like the Oscars. They're snobs. I, so right, you have Battlestar Galactica, which fact, could the the get fact nowhere. Walking the
3: Walking Dead has never seen an actor nomination nowhere. for Andrew and Lincoln or for Norman Reedus it's or for some other Academy. It's a zombie show. To yeah, Academy but it's a blockbuster. But I think, yeah. and, I, and I think this is a way for us to talk about this other subject about it, which the Emmys, much more than the Oscars, are showing a flexibility and a tuning into to reality. Let's, for instance, look at Showtime's Billions, where Asia Kate Dillon, who is a, a non-gender-specific performer, goes by the expression they, as opposed to he and her, mm-hmm. has reached out to the Academy in a letter a couple weeks ago, saying that they wanted to know what category they could put themselves up for a a category for a nomination, because the understanding of the rules is, is that actor is actually not gender specific. And here's what was great about the TV Academy, which let's cop it. Both of you and I are members of, though I am a non-voting member. Mm -hmm. What was great about them is unlike the Oscars, which move at like a glacial pace, even when accountants are spending more time tweeting than actually handing the correct envelopes to Warren Beatty, they responded within hours saying, yes. Asia point taken in fact that is something that can happen so already you're going to see those stripes of the zebra change this year I think that we are going to see one of the most exciting Emmy races this year and I think no Game of Thrones on the table, but I think we're going to see some real, real surprises
2: this year. At least I hope. Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, from your mouth to uh, the Emmy voters' ears, because I think they tend to go to the same things over and over and over again. It's very hard to break through. The Emmys follow the Golden Globes, for God's sake. The Golden then Globes the are crown. more innovative well, than the. Uh, than uh, the innovative, Emmys. being another word, for meaning maybe meaning like embracing the new. <laughs> embracing <laughs> embracing something that hasn't been on a few years. It's very hard to break through at the Emmys. Now they have gotten a little bit uh, better in recent years. A couple of th- new things come along, and then they, they do that, and then they do that show for the next four or five years. That's the problem with the series Emmys. I do... Um, Agree with you. I think this is a great thing for the transgender community that the Academy responded uh, so easily. I don't think that would happen in the Oscars because look at Linda Hunt. She won, she's not a transgender, but she won the Supporting Actress Award for playing a man. Are you suggesting that maybe she should have entered herself in the Supporting Actor category because of the character? No, but I'm not suggesting that. But I do think this. I do think there needs to be, in, in 2017,
3: there needs to be... A new discussion about what the categories are. I'll also point this to you. I think in 2017 there needs to be a big discussion about cutting some of these categories. Well, yeah, Because absolutely. I because I think that the the Emmys turns a little bit into Coachella, which is <laughs> it goes on for days and days and, and days. Three and three ceremonies and just for prime exactly, time. Exactly, exactly <laughs> like Coachella: a Friday night, a Saturday night, and a Sunday night, and then feels like it repeats the next weekend when we're yeah. back into award season again. Yeah. But let's wrap up on this. Yeah. This is going to be a topic we're going to be on all this right. time over exactly. our podcast. Yep. I think we have a word, as they love to say in the old days, from our sponsors this week's episode is brought to you by the big bang theory from warner brothers television for cbs entertainment weekly called the hit comedy an a plus tv guide magazine calls it classy and hilarious and usa today says it will still make you laugh out loud for your emmy consideration in all categories Now, with all Pete and I's talks about the merits of Emmys versus Oscars and what have you, we, of course, have some real players. And literally, we had some real players on stage recently at our Contenders Emmys event at the DGA. And, you know... The Contenders Emmys event, I mean, Pete, this is the second time we've done this one. And it's a great one. I mean, we've done Contenders Oscars for several years. I really feel like we just packed the place. We get so many. Net, we had what? We had 25 networks, 50 shows. It was you. It was me. It was editors-in-chief Mike Fleming and Nelly Andreva. We had Michael Asiello from TV Line there. And so to that point, I want to go and talk to a couple of clips from, I want to have a couple of clips from a couple of the shows. One of which I think is a really important one looking going to this year's Emmys is it's the third and final season of HBO's The Leftover from Damon Lindahl. And this show has received so much acclaim and I don't feel like it's ever got the Emmy love it deserved. We might see something happen this year. But let's listen to this discussion that Michael Osiello of TV Line had with Damon about the difference between wrapping up The Leftovers
0: and, and some of you will remember
3: this, good or bad, wrapping up Lost.
0: So where did the eight episodes come about? And was that enough time for you to wrap up the story?
1: Uh, HBO was like, you only get eight episodes and we were like that sounds good Um, coming out of the second we had done ten episodes season one ten episodes season two and we didn't know if there was gonna uh, be a season three Uh, and uh, the entire second season had aired and then HBO called and said uh, we'd like to do some some more Uh, we said we would love to but do can we end the show because it feels like we're closer to the end now than we were to the beginning and they said great, Uh, how does eight episodes sound? And we said, fantastic.
0: Fair to say less pressure wrapping up this series than your last one, Lost. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Yes,
1: (laughs) less, indeed, less.
0: And, And does it make it more creatively exciting because you don't have to worry so much about the public, you can just sort of just follow your vision?
1: I, I wish it were that simple. I mean, I think that uh, the reality is, is television is an incredibly intimate medium. We invite it into our homes, and now we watch it on our our iPads, a, a foot away from our face. So I, I, I deeply want to connect with the audience, and I wish that I could say that I didn't care what anybody else thought. But the fact that I, you know, care probably a little too much, according to my wife and my therapist, um, the uh, uh, that's what makes me want to write. So. I am anxious about the way that the final season is going to be perceived, but I'm really proud of uh, the work we did.
0: And Justin, it's a unique situation to, um, most series run for six or seven seasons or whatnot. Um, Some of them don't even get a chance to wrap it up. Here you are, you did half, two dozen episodes, three seasons, um, is that sort of like an actor's dream, to be able yeah, to... Yeah, I ha- mean,
4: actually, Damon was very clear, even at the big, at the onset, because I was sort of nervous about doing a, you know, because you're, you're confronted with a contract that's very long, and you go, oh my god, you know, this could be a thing where we could do it. And also with, you know, cable television, can, it can really expand out if they decide to take a year-long hiatus. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to be doing it into your 50s. But Damon was very, uh, like, clear. He's like, well, this is going to be three, maybe four seasons tops. It was kind of a handshake deal before we did the pilot. So that was kind of comforting knowing that like, oh, there's a sort of an overall idea in mind, you know, or there's a certain amount of real estate for, you know, all the kind of themes that he wants to pick through and it's not going to be this never ending story where you're, you know, it, it, felt like it was, he had a, a, in mind for it to be sort of bookended in some way, you know? So just
1: so we're clear, I would have betrayed you had the show. Been <laughs> like if, it, if it had been like <laughs> a it massive a rating success, hand. I would have been, been like, like handshake. What handshake? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
4: Gentleman's agreement. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you in court. <laughs> you will honor that contract.
1: <laughs> very litigious How person. Dare you. Yeah.
3: Coming off that one, we have Mr. Pete Hammond himself, who was on stage with the cast of The Path. Now, Hulu's The Path is now in its second season, renewed for its third. You know, Pete talked on stage a little bit about the cast, about bringing binging shows, and whether people are discovering the past on Hulu the same way that people discovered, say, shows like AMC's Breaking Bad.
2: You know, a lot of people, Aaron. I, I know a lot of people discovered Breaking Bad as it got onto Netflix and things, and did start to binge it, and they watched it that way.
4: Yeah, as, um, as we were, I think shooting season four, they dropped the first three seasons on Netflix, and that's when it went. And we had, you know, a very passionate following. It was a very, it was small, but um, they were passionate, you know, viewers. But once it dropped on Netflix, it allowed everyone to kind of just catch up and that's when it just spiked but
5: that's how I that's how I did it I watched it actually I binge watched it I was yeah. like nine months pregnant
4: how was that and then
5: <laughs> I did I had a popcorn sitting right on my belly Love <laughs> but it. um but then i I was able to watch the finale in real time so yeah. it was really exciting but you were like you know and then who knew like about two years later that you know yeah.
2: yeah, we're here. Yeah, we're here. I love you. <laughs> and indeed, and however you watch the show, it's fascinating to see where the characters go. And you have sort of left. You've you've gone off on your own in this season, and and uh, and he's gone a different path as yeah. we're here.
4: Yeah, I mean, in in the in the pilot episode with my character, you know, he he joined the movement when he was in a very uh, a low point in his life, and he then was introduced to. His beautiful, uh, beautiful wife who was born into the movement and they've raised their two kids in the movement and he sort of has this aha awakening moment in the first episode where he just doesn't buy into it whatsoever anymore. And so that's sort of his struggle through the first season and he's just trying to you know, break away.
2: Has this given you more of a, uh, an awareness, you guys, of the self-help movement of, of all of this? How much do, have you delved into that to play these roles, Michelle, in, in, in playing this particular character?
5: Well, I think what's been um, the most fascinating for me is um, all of the people that um, I've really um, delved into French movements and self-help. And it's, it's really... Um, kind of almost a bit cathartic for some of them, I think, because people are very open and um, vulnerable about um, telling their stories and their experiences, you know, and saying, you know, I was involved with this group down in South America or upstate New York or my sister did this or, you know, my mom or I grew up in this movement. Um, So that's been, I I, I guess I didn't realize how prevalent that was. And so that's very interesting. I think, you know, I think what Jessica has done so well with the show as the writers, you know, it's, it's we're not sort of confined by any one idea. And so I think the show feels very traditional in a lot of ways in respect to faith and religion and movements, but also feels very contemporary in terms of the way that it deals with kind of the mythological aspects of, of faith and, and um, different cultures and things like that. And so I'm not surprised that you know there's a lot of different people identifying with, with the show.
2: You know, and, and Hugh, Cal and Sarah have done some pretty... Shady things as sort of self-proclaimed guardians of the light here and your character in particular Cal is one of the most Unpredictable ones I've seen in some time you think you know where this guy's going and then uh, You know he does surprising things uh, Yeah, it's surprising it. for me too uh,
1: <laughs> often. I know and I think in the way that the second season uh, Veered off quite sharply from the first season I mean in ways that were responsive to what had happened to all of us in the first season, but the the stuff that um, Cal is wrestling with, and 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 ultimately Sarah as well, and, uh, and equally the journey that Eddie's going on. So, <clears throat> so yes, that is true. He is particularly a volatile, I suppose. Um, I think Aaron has told like told us that people I think stop him quite a lot and say, you know, like I really identify with your character because I w- was in some kind of a movement like this, and I've got out and recognize nobody comes and says that to me
2: (laughs) (laughs) like those people are crossing the street you know Uh, I would like to meet those people who come up and say I identify (laughs) with Cal (laughs) yeah yeah, no that's but it is
1: it's really true (laughs) what Michelle says it's amazing how many people joking aside say very casually yeah you know I was in a cult Mm -hmm. I mean all the time I get this
2: This week's episode is brought to you by Warner Brothers Television's acclaimed CBS comedy Mom, starring Anna Faris and Emmy winner Allison Janney. USA Today calls Mom one of TV's best comedies and most interesting series. And the New York Times says no series is better at mixing laugh-out-loud comedy and somber themes than Mom, for your Emmy consideration in all categories.
3: Wrapping things up today on our debut of our TV talk podcast, we have to talk about what's really causing a lot of tension in the town. The possibility of another writer's strike. Now, the last one was in 2007. Made the bones of deadline in many ways how we covered that. And we're certainly going to be all over it this year if it happens. Honestly, in full disclosure, we're pre-recording this podcast. So by the time it actually goes up, negotiations might have been a big thumbs up and everyone's doing a happy dance. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think that with the negotiations starting on April 17th, after a break over the Easter weekend, the WGA and the producers in the studios, they're in this for the long haul. You know, Pete, you've seen these happen before. We've seen these strikes. What do you think?
2: And how will this affect the Emmys? Well, I'm in the Writers Guild, and I've been in the Writers Guild a long time, and I remember The Last Strike, and it didn't do a whole lot of good, although, you know, any time you're standing up for yourself is good, and the writers are notoriously the ones who lead the charge Provide the material, look at the empty page, and get screwed in the end by the producers. Whereas the directors and other guilds seem to get deals immediately or with no uh, strike talk. It's it's great for them. It's much harder for the writer. And there's a lot of issues now. And uh, you know, and they're going to call for a strike authorization. And quite frankly, I I I think any writer should give them strike authorization because. How can you go into a negotiation when your own union says, no way, we're not going on strike? That puts you in a very weak thing. So I think we will have strike authorization. That does not mean, Dominic, there will be a strike. Well, let's. I mean. Nobody I, wants a strike. No, but let's talk a little
3: bit about the timeline and some math before we get yeah. into that, which is, is, you know, we are now in the last two weeks of this. The current three-year contract expires on May 1st, which means, and the Writers Guild have said this, both West and East, have said on May 2nd, if they receive the strike authorization, I think think the the ballots are going out, I think they'll know by April 24th or so, if they receive it, which I'm sure they will, they will now be in a a mode and they will on May 2nd go on strike. So. I think that there's some posturing here. You know, we deadlines uh, myself and David Rob broke the story that this, that this was the move they were gonna make. And very quickly we saw the response from the producers and from Hollywood. Now everyone's a little tense. It was a break off in negotiations. They went back to the table and now they've resumed after, the, as I said earlier, after the Easter weekend on Monday, April 17th. The problem here is there's a point at which you go to DEFCON 3. There's a point at which you go to DEFCON 2. And then you're sitting there with people with their hands over the thing, over the button. And I'm wondering if the producers really think they can bluff this or if the Writers Guild think, you know what, we're going to hit the button. We might just hit the button for a week to show
2: them, to scare them. Right. We might hit the button for a month, or we might see a summer of pickets. Well, I think you could see a summer of pickets. I mean, once you have a strike, it sort of careens out of control. And there are certain issues that are really important that people are emotional about, and that can drive a strike, and that happens to be the health fund, uh, which goes right into the talk about health uh, insurance and everything else going. The Writers Guild has a very good health fund, but it's running out of money. And pensions, which I have a pension. I'm vested in the Writers Guild. I have a pension that I could pick up uh, eventually. And uh, I don't want that to go away because I don't trust uh, what the government is doing and things like that. And I think you could easily uh, see a path where all of this stuff goes away. That's number one. And I think when you talk to writers, that's the first thing they'll say. Then there are the, all these issues, Dominic, about these new Fangled kinds of television. Seasons. Well, exactly,
3: exactly. And what you're seeing here. I mean, one of the things that I know that is, is frustrating a lot of writers is while we're all going on, and I do it ton, time and time again in my reviews, we all go on about peak TV and the streamers and Netflix. And this is something which I think is interesting: is Netflix and Amazon and Hulu. They were not on the board back in 2007, so you're no. going to see where they, they come on this. And there might be elements which they there might be elements of some of the contracts which they're not actually covered by. So it might be interesting mm-hmm. to see how they react, how Ted Sarandos, how Jeff Bezos and his crew. And and others decide hey you know what we're going to jump in on this because all those shows again are in production but interestingly as, as the changes are going to reflect how this plays out netflix and amazon shows are not running literally 10 days ahead of when they're going to air the way big four shows are and even some of the cablers like you know like homeland was very close to some
2: of its its dates this year yeah. uh to be timely
3: you know they're running in in Huge banks. So, so do can, the
2: producers want to risk letting Netflix and Amazon get a leg up on them by having all these shows pre-done, these whole series uh, Well, seasons? that's the
3: thing. Or what happens is, you know, for a Netflix show that, let's say, is in production um, on the Paramount lot or the Fox lot or something like that right now, they're going to be, look, their people are going to have to walk off. People are going to lose money and what have you. But they can just, when this is all solved— pick up in September and be like, okay, we're going to now we'll start up on episode seven again and we'll go, yeah. off, you know, we'll push back our, our our launch date. So if you see a show launches in the spring or the summer, they'll push it back a couple weeks. No one's going to cry and say like, oh my God, my show had to start on, on, right. on May 27th. So yeah. they have an advantage of flexibility that the big four and even some of the cablers don't have. But look at what the writers are facing. With all this television, they're still seeing actual numbers and actual paychecks go down because you're seeing shows that actually only have six episodes seasons or shows that only even on some of the networks only have 13 episode runs and then there's the holds so so many writers are working more and making less.
2: And it's their fault too in a lot of ways because when you interview a lot of them who are writer-producers in the television medium, they say, oh, you know, it's more like a six-hour movie to me. It's it's this. It's not like a series because they don't want to like, a lot of them don't want to admit they're writing a television series or something. So they call it, it's just a long movie. It's really just longer. It's just 10 hours, you know, and that's what it felt like making a movie. Well, that's catnip in the hands of the producers because they're saying, exactly. you know, this is not it. But I would say the whole idea of seasons and this thing that it was built on, that the bones of these contracts were built on, although they've changed over the years, are defunct. It just doesn't exist anymore, and we have to look forward here, and the producers have to come to the table here with the writers and realize we're dealing in a different world, and there are so many issues that the writers have just uncovered uh, in this negotiation that they came to that I think surprised the producers. They weren't expecting this because they didn't get it from the directors i know, you know i mean
3: and this is the thing the dga <laughs> made their deal uh late last year and and ratified it you know everybody knew that this contract negotiation was going to be a bit more fraught i don't think they suspected it was going to get like this to the sort of brinkmanship but you know a lot of the issues that came up in 2007 and maybe some people on both sides were more strident than they are now I, that's to be gauged by by all of us but these same issues digital rights the new world of streaming the new world of cable and the expanded world of cable these issues are not going to go away Mm. and the industry on both sides i think has to start addressing them and maybe as you say maybe needs to remake the format maybe you need to say like look we're going to start creating different levels here because these plans I, i look my heart is always with with labor, but the reality is that sometimes everyone needs to sit down and go. How is this going to play out? Oh, by the way, how is this going to play out for the parts that we don't know, That's which right. is happening over and over again. And
2: what even the traditional networks are doing now is getting into all of this too on the sidelines, and 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 the way they're uh, positioning some of their shows after they run on the network and all of this stuff. It's like it's it's a very very tricky situation that we're in now. I think maybe the solution is going to be look we will deal with some of this now we'll give you some hard cash here and that sort of thing but we will you know with the producers and the writers get together and come up with a real serious answer to these problems which aren't going away they're only increasing and they're going to have to come to a meeting of the minds on this
3: hmm. Or a meeting, at least, of, of the everyone puts their cards and their guns on the table. Yeah. Listen, thanks for listening to the Deadline Podcast TV Talk. Now, you can find me on Twitter at DeadlineDominic. And you can find me on Twitter at Deadline Pete. Now, of course, you can find all of our Emmy-breaking news coverage at Deadline.com, as well as Pete's movie reviews and my TV reviews. Today's show was produced and edited by David Jano. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye.